0: They ask me about religion, why? They ask me about my race and my tribe. They ask about my complexion. Why? When they ask me, this is what I say: My grandfather was a Muslim, and my daddy was a Rasta. Was... Assalamu alaikum. May the peace and blessings of Almighty God be upon each and every one of you welcome to this week's edition of a diaspora, a diaspora of one a weekly radio program highlighting issues and ideas relevant to the diverse muslim communities in the caribbean and latin america guidance is a gift that the lord shall give to any man or woman whether small or big god said you must reflect you have use your mind so now you know the
1: reason why Welcome to this week's episode of A Diaspora of One. We begin our show this week with this introduction by our Sister Firhana Bulbuya. Sister Firhana is the founder of the Barbados Association of Muslim Ladies and the recipient of the prestigious Queen's Young Leaders Award for her campaign to educate young women in Barbados through a project aimed at breaking social, economic, and cultural barriers.
2: أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم يا أيها الناس إن وخلقناكم من زكر وانثى وجعلناكم شعوبا وقبائل لتعارفوا ان اكرمكم عند الله اتقاكم in a croma cum in the That was twenty
3: seven year old Hafiz Muzamil Hospila of Aceh, Indonesia reciting from chapter 49, verse 13 of the Qur'an. In English, O mankind, surely we created you of a male and a female, and we have made you into nations and tribes, that you may become mutually acquainted. Surely the most honourable among you in the sight of God are those who are most pious. Surely God is ever-knowing, fully aware of all things. The killing of George Floyd, an African-American man whose strangulation at the knee of a Minneapolis police officer was caught in a harrowing video and shared across social media, sparking massive protests globally and here at home in the Caribbean to end racism and all forms of systemic discrimination. A few days ago, a church in Houston, Texas, held a prayer service for Floyd before he was laid to rest. Hundreds of people gathered outside the packed church in a peaceful assembly to remember and mourn Floyd. His name has become synonymous with the police brutality and cruelty that is too frequently inflicted on black people in America with impunity. Members of the Nation of Islam, a black Muslim movement led by Minister Louis Farrakhan, provided security instead of the Houston Police Department. Outside the church, activists with civil rights movement called Black Lives Matter held up signs demanding radical change, among them signs calling on cities to defund the police. The call to defund the police is gaining momentum as more and more cases of police brutality leading to the death of innocent black men and women are coming to light. But what would cities look like without police forces? Would it descend into anarchy and vigilantism? Astonishingly, hundreds of black men and women have been killed in the United States in what would be described as a routine traffic stops by armed cops. In 2015, Sarah Bland mysteriously died in police custody shortly after she was pulled over for failing to signal on a turn. In 2014, Michael Brown was shot to death by a police officer in Ferguson, Missouri for allegedly shoplifting a pack of cigars from a convenience store. Then there was Freddie Gray in Baltimore, who was beaten so badly he went into a coma and never recovered. Philando Castile was pulled over by a Minneapolis police officer and shot several times after he handed over proof of his car insurance. And who can forget the case of Eric Garner in New York City, suspected by police of illegally selling cigarettes and choked to death? When Walter Scott of South Carolina was stopped by a police for non-functioning taillight, he panicked and ran from his car and was shot to death from behind by a white police officer. Some experts say these deaths are the result of a widespread tactic used by police forces in the United States called preventative policing. That's why the number of people calling for smaller police forces is growing rapidly. They insist that armed tactical units should only be deployed in cases of real and imminent threat to public safety and security. The purpose of policing, the raison d'être policing, its core goal is to serve and protect, not murder and maim. All of this got me thinking about the issue of public safety and security from an Islamic perspective. Islam is not divorced from our daily lived experiences. Let's not forget, that in the Caribbean and major cities in the United States, Canada, the United Kingdom and Europe, there are hundreds of diverse people of colour, including hundreds of Muslim men and women, who serve as police officers and security agents. The NYPD in New York has an active Muslim Officers Association with tons of members. What is the prophetic model of social justice? and more specifically, public safety look like? And what lessons can we derive from the life of God's final messenger that we can apply in today's challenges?
1: Great question, Sister Frehanna. Frehanna is an activist and someone on the front lines of the campaign for social justice in her native Barbados. What follows next is a conversation that Farhana had earlier this week with a leading American female Islamic scholar, Ustada Aisha. Ustada Aisha is no stranger to the Caribbean. She has visited Guyana as a lecturer at a conference in 2019. That's where Farhana first met her. Ustada Aisha visited Guyana again earlier this year at the invitation of the Central Islamic Organization of Guyana, where hundreds of Guyanese Muslims turned out to listen to her lectures. After converting to Islam some 25 years ago, Ustada Aisha began her formal study of Islam with scholars in Egypt, followed by years of studies at Daral al-Zahra, a prestigious seminary in the city of Tarum, which is located in the valley of Hadramount in Yemen. Her passion for the empowerment of Muslim women led her to create a non-profit organization called Sisterhood in Action. She is currently a scholar-in-resident and chaplain at the Islamic Center at New York University, or NYU.
3: Ustada Aisha Prime, assalamu alaikum. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me today, and welcome to A Diaspora of One.
4: Wa alaikum salam, rahmatullahi wa Jazakum Allah Khair, thank you so much for having me.
3: Of course. So let's get started. I'm sure you've been following the events in the United States closely, following the death of George Floyd. Can you share with us some of what you've been thinking, especially these last two weeks?
4: Of course, my thoughts as well as my emotions have pretty much run the gamut. It's gone from outrage to, of course, sadness. But I must admit, there is an underlying, consistent, deep sense of hope That has really come over me these last two weeks, especially as I have seen people just across the world really waking up and responding to the death of George Floyd, responding to the protesters, responding to those who are calling for action against police brutality, who are calling for things of of anti-racism. For sure, we're seeing aspects of our local community as well as our national community and the international community responding to this movement and this message like we've never seen before. So that's deeply hopeful for me. That gives me a deep sense of hope.
3: When it comes to racism and its twin brother of nationalism, are there lessons we can learn both from the Quran and the life of the Prophet, peace be upon
4: him? Oh, absolutely. If there were ever a question about Islam being relevant in our time, now is the time where that relevance is really shining through. That when we look at the example of the Prophet Muhammad and how he put into action the healing of racial divides, how he addressed issues of colorism, how he addressed issues of classism, uh, we find enormous amount of lessons in the life of the Prophet If we were to first even take before the advent of revelation, that the Prophet Anay belonged to an organization called Hifud Fudul. And Hifful-Fudul was literally a community organization that was built upon the foundation of raising up the status of those who were oppressed in the land, who were analyzing and thinking about. What were the state of the economic era of the Meccans at the time and how that was deeply impactful upon what we consider vulnerable populations in the Meccan society and how that was adding to slavery and how it was adding to people's greed and as a result, the mistreatment of those who were on the lower social status. And so the fact that the Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, joined that organization even before the advent of Islam, what he's saying is that you just need your humanity to be intact. To recognize that. And so when Islam comes, when Quran is revealed, what we find is this is like light upon light. This is like a light that becomes an internal light that is added to the light of understanding humanity. And so after that, the Prophet, we know that even his relationship, his personal relationships, number one, his relationship with Um Ayman, who we call Barakah who was an Abyssinian woman, who was the first hands that touched the hands of the Messenger of Allah, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, as he entered into the world. These are the same hands that helped bury his mother, the same hands that walked the Prophet as a very young boy into Mecca. These are the same hands that would take care of him as he's growing up and would feed him and nurture him. And so even the Messenger of Allah, when Zayd comes into his life, Zayd ibn Harith, which we know was someone who was stolen from East Africa and then brought into the Arabian Peninsula, When he arrives in the household of the prophet, we find that many times the prophet would be mending his own clothes or doing things for himself. And they would say, you have Zayd to do that. And he would respond, I can do this for myself. And even as it relates to his relationship with Zayd, he gives him a title that all of us wish we could have, where he stands in front of everyone, knowing full well the mentality of the Arab society at this time, Knowing full well how they view Abyssinians and East Africans, he literally says, this is Zayd ibn Muhammad. This is the Zayd, the son of Muhammad, claiming him to himself, which is something that subhanAllah, that the Prophet does, he's correcting and addressing the ills in the heart of the society, even just from his own personal capacity. And we find this later on with Salman uh, al-Farisi, that he knows that Salman al-Farisi is not from the Arabs, comes from outside. And we know at this time, you know, how Arabs are very, there's a nationalistic standpoint in terms of how they view their tribes and their heritage. And so when he says about Salman al-Farisi, that Salman is from Ahlul Bayt, that Salman is from me. And so what he's addressing is, your understanding and your concept of otherness has no place with the righteous has no place with those who worship Allah and who follow the example of the prophet and then of course we have countless examples as it relates to directly with the case of Bilal Ibn Rabah which we all like to quote when we, we have to be careful about that about always running to Bilal to say see see we're not racist we've got Bilal as an example we have to be very careful about that to make sure that we're presented when we do present Bilal that we're presenting him in a manner that offers the full perspective, that it's not just him as an individual, but how the Prophet, wasalam, dealt with his entire people. And so one of those concepts that we have, subhanAllah, is a narration. There's one that we don't actually know the companion, and there's one that it's contributed to Abu Al Ghafari, where Abu Al Ghafari is known that Bilal ibn Rubah steps on his foot in a gathering and Abu Dhar al-Ghifari or another companion says to him, oh, you son of a black woman. Because Bilal's father was an Arab, the reason he mentions his mother is because he wishes to insult him. And he uses his colorism as well to address this. And so immediately, Bilal ibn Rabah goes to the messenger of Allah, a.s. A.s., acknowledging him as the highest authority in his mind, the, high, the one who would give the highest moral authority as well as who would address this social-political issue. And so he says to the Messenger of Allah, this is what Abu Dha'arif said about me, or this is what this companion said about me. And immediately, the Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, does something really amazing. He doesn't say to Bilal, oh Bilal, you are the son of a Black woman, why do you care about that? Or, oh Bilal, you should be patient. Oh, Oh Bilal, this is your brother, you should forgive him. He doesn't dismiss at all the feelings of Bilal, but he immediately recognizes the wrong and he addresses it. May Allah be pleased with him. He turns to the companion and addresses him and he says, you still have some jahiliyyah, some ignorance in your heart. And so because he addresses, you still have some jahiliyyah in your heart, immediately the companion recognizes, I've been reprimanded by the messenger of Allah. I've been reprimanded by the highest authority on the land. And so then he he puts his head on the ground And he does something that's so relevant to the George Floyd case, where he literally says, oh, Bilal, I won't get up until you put your foot on my neck. And so even inside of this narration, what we begin to recognize is that this action of someone putting their foot or their leg or their knee on someone's neck, that this is something that is degrading. This is something that would put someone that would check them in their place. This is an action that is meant to humiliate. And, and it's amazing that we have this example inside of the prophetic tradition. Well, Abu Dhani Farid literally switches the narrative. He says, oh, Bilal, and saying, oh, you that I've wronged. I won't get up until you do that to me. And so Bilal initially refuses and then he insists. And he says, because I want to get this out of my heart, that if I've been doing this to other people, I want you to do this. If I've been doing this proverbially to other people, then I want you now to do this to me so that there is some justice that has been taken. And so Bilal, just to a piece, gently does the gesture. And what's amazing about this, it doesn't end there. The Prophet then tells them to go to Abyssinia as their first migration, uh, which is huge. Uh, in terms of that, because he could have gone to another Arabian city, another town, but to tell them to go to Abyssinia, he's like, basically, in order for you to be successful, in order for you to have true liberation against the Meccans, against those who are oppressing and persecuting you, you first got to remove the tyrant inside of your own heart. So if you've been looking at the Abyssinian, the Ethiopian, the African people, black people as beneath you and below you, now you're going to have to seek refuge in them. You're going to have to have some atonement for the wrong that you've done by kidnapping and enslaving their people. And you're going to have to learn from their civilization, from their system of governance, which the Meccan society didn't have. And so by learning and, and adopting their, this culture, this system, these are the lessons that they could then take into Medina in order to build the Medinan society. And it is a foundational principle by changing their hearts that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ultimately gives them victory of Mecca, of the opening of Mecca. And so, I mean, these are just a few anecdotes of how the Prophet, Salam gave us, demonstrates for us his exact relevance in the George Floyd case, and not only George Floyd, but the countless men and women who are suffering under the tyranny of racism and how we, in order for us to have, from a societal standpoint, from an individual standpoint, and then the recognizing spiritually that if we want liberation, we first have got to rid our own hearts of the tyranny of our own colorism and our own racism.
3: Aisha Prime? How can we, particularly young people following the events worldwide and looking to the example of the beloved prophet, peace be upon him, how can we implement these lessons in our own communities?
4: First thing is, when we look at the prophet, oh no, a snap, we recognize that it's not enough to be non-racist. It's not enough to just say, you know what, I'm not a racist. You know, I wish the best for them. You know, may God help them. Or if they just, you know, were able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps or if they weren't so lazy, that whatever opinions that people are having, what the Prophet was able to do was first, he was able to have an internal insight where he could recognize the problem in the society. And then he had, you know, once upon that recognition, there was a deep sense of it's not upon those who are victims of tyranny and victims of oppression, to only be responsible for liberating themselves. That those who are in positions of privilege have got to get involved and help. So it's, it's not okay, again, him joining society, him actively fighting it. In, there's no such thing anymore as an innocent bystander. At this point, that's an oxymoron. If you're a bystander, you're not innocent. If you're not part of the solution, then you're part of the problem. And it's not enough, again, to be non-racist and do nothing and say, you know, I don't have it in my heart, that you have to actively be anti-racist as Allah Ta'ala has told us, ya Oh you who believe, um, you have to stand up. Lillahi that you have to be amongst those who are actively standing up for justice as witnesses for Allah. So the fact that Allah Ta'ala in the Quran reminds us, in the chapter of women, in verse 135, When he says, oh, you who believe, he's calling us out. Like if you claim to be a believer, you've got to stand up as witnesses for Allah by doing what? By establishing justice. And so for us, there's no such thing as an innocent bystander, not in this process. Standing up for justice is intertwined as an intricate matter of our faith. That's one of the lessons. Lastly, I would just mention in the example when Abu Bakr Sadiq, may Allah be pleased with him, It was a direct command from the Prophet to Abu Bakr Siddiq, go free your brother Bilal. And so when he goes and he sees him with this rock upon his chest and being tortured, he uses his wealth, his status in order to free him, in order to remove that rock from upon his chest. And so this is something that is significant for us to recognize because what it says is, it was an order from the Prophet to Abu Bakr. This is what you do with privilege. This is what you do with status. This is what you do with wealth. You don't go to Bilal and say, you know what, you need to stand up and free yourself. What he says is, I have a responsibility to help you do that. And so we have to look at that, is that this action is a direct command from the Prophet, it is his sunnah, it is his example. And it's something that Allah has commanded us in the Quran, his messenger, alayhi implemented, and it was a part of the righteous companions.
3: Right now, as we speak, People are calling, demanding that police be defunded and that resources go instead towards community-based models of safety and security. How do you imagine a prophetic model of public safety and security might look like today?
4: You know, when we look at first, what are they calling for? I think we have to first understand Uh, the concept of what does it mean to defund them? Are they asking to be absolutely no police officers on the street? No, that would be very dangerous. But what we do have to look at is how basically the police force in America, not only in America, but internationally as well, that the police force is used as an agent to enforce the, the system of racism, to enforce the system of white supremacy. And so that's why their policing is demonstrated in this way, that it's demonstrated in a way that's actually harmful to the people. So there are a number of programs that police officers are a part of that, that are funded by the government, by taxpayers, that are actually fueling these actions. One particular one we could start with, the least, is that there's incentive. There's money given to police officers based upon how many people can you bring in. How many people can you go out and arrest? How many beds inside of the system can you fill? And so that's a problem from the beginning because then it says you are literally going out and looking for people that you could arrest. And many times, that kind of incentive that there's budget for, like we're going to give you more money if you bring us more people. This is literally the system of how. Slavery existed in America. You bring me more slaves, I'll give you some money. And we have to then understand how private prisons work. The more beds they fill, there are people, certain investors, that are actually padding their pocket as a result of these people being in prison. In addition to what we know is that African Americans are three to five times more likely to get a heavier sentence than their white counterparts for committing the same action or the same crime. So that kind of program needs to be looked into. Another aspect is that they're asking for defunding as it relates to police going out on mental health calls, mental health distress calls. And we've seen this happen a number of times, even in the case of Natasha McKenna in Fairfax County, Virginia, where this was a woman, African American, who was experiencing a bipolar manic episode. Well, the night didn't end until she had been murdered by a police officer, literally tasing her to death in her cell. And why did he do Because he was not, interestingly enough, he's being funded for bringing her in. There's incentive for that. There's also funding for him to respond to a mental health call. But he's not equipped to do that. The police officers are not equipped to do that. And so too many times are too many cases of police responding to mental health distress calls and that person ending up dead as a result of the police responding to that. That money needs to be redirected into mental health workers who are capable and trained and who have the experience in dealing with a mental health call so that many of those who are experiencing this, obviously, that they, they don't end up murdered or killed because they're having mental illness. So that's another aspect that needs to be defunded.
3: In the Caribbean, in certain spaces, we often hear people reject black lives matter and would rather say all lives matter. In your opinion, is this problematic and how can Muslim communities grapple with this divide in
4: thinking? So the, the thing about all lives matter is that it is a true statement, yet it is dismissive. Right. It is dismissive. And what it does is overlook the problem. If we really believe that all lives matter, then we would not be seeing the very intentional destructive actions toward black lives. So so when people say that black lives matter, they're not saying only black lives matter they're saying inside of that statement of Black Lives Matter is already that all lives matter, which means Black Lives Matter too, Black Lives Matter also. And so if all lives matter, we wouldn't even be inside of the discussion to address Black lives. And so it would, to be honest with, if we're looking statistically, and this is you know what we have to begin to examine, is that when we look at the statistics, we don't have from education, to healthcare, to policing, to residential, to banking, we don't find that black lives matter in the society, nor from a government structure, the same way that other lives matter. They don't matter as much as white lives. White people are not being killed at the same rate. They don't matter as much as Asian lives inside of these structures because Asians are not being killed at the same rate. They don't matter as much as other, even certain immigrant life, because they're not being killed and targeted as in the same rate. And so I think because we're not aware, we're not always educated about why we might just look at it and say that, oh, here they go protesting again, here they go demanding for something. But the only reason they're demanding that, protesting for that, is because they're saying, I also matter. That's what Black Lives Matter means. It means I also matter. Um, And it's time to show the kind of equity that would demonstrate that. Ustada Aisha, it is an honor and privilege to speak with you. It was an honor and a privilege to be on this
1: that was our sister firhana bulbuya in conversation with american muslim scholar aisha prime who is currently a chaplain with the islamic center at nyu and that's our program for this week we hope that you have enjoyed it and we hope that you will join us again next week same time same place for another episode of a diaspora of one until then take care stay healthy and be safe
0: they asked me about religion why they asked me about my race and my tribe they asked about my complexion why? when they asked me this is what i say my grandfather was a muslim and my daddy was a rasta they were searching for the truth and the quran they gave the answer they put their hands up they ask the Lord why we never worship the creation we only pray to the creation